0: Welcome to Unlocked, a podcast from National Library of Scotland and the Scotland Sounds Network. I'm Lindsay Moyes. Throughout the series, we've been showcasing a selection of archive audio which has been rescued and restored from all over Scotland as part of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. We've also been meeting some of the team here at the National Library of Scotland, and they've been picking out their audio highlights. The theme for this episode is activism.
1: What I tried to pick up by selecting these clips was the different ways in which people were active. oral history as a movement tends to pick up stories from people from marginalized communities who are going through struggle or have been through a struggle in some way and are sharing that story that might not necessarily be recorded through the official more recorded history. You tend to find, the thing that activism does come out of that quite a lot.
0: That's Alistair Bell, Sounds Collections Curator at the National Library of Scotland. In order to be able to share these clips with the public, there's a process. The team check,
2: if possible, that everyone who features in the recordings is happy to be involved. My name is Mel Weave-Rollings and I'm the Rights Officer for the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage Project at the National Library of Scotland. My role is very focused on the copyright and data protection aspects. It can be a bit disappointing because I think when I say what I do, people maybe switch off a little bit because they do just assume it's like boring legal documentation. But actually, what interests me is that very human aspect. You know, I'm contacting people who did an oral history recording, let's say in the 80s, and then never thought about it again. They're like, oh, this old thing, what do you want that for? and you know sometimes I can chat to them about why it is valuable and that's really exciting and it brings me a lot of joy to get to have those interactions with people and I think it really does just remind you of the real human lives that exist in archival records. This first clip reminds us of just that. Isa Port,
0: painting a picture of her life in Lang, Glasgow, It's part of a large collection recorded by Neil Rafik of Strathclyde University. He spoke to a cross-section of women who were all members of the Communist Party.
3: Before the war and after the war, we were still in our old house. uh, And they they were old miners' rows down in Cambuslang, And uh, we had to get a recommendation to get one, to get the tenancy of one. And we got it, we were told, we were taken in by my husband's aunt, to get their house they had bought one and we were told they didn't want a tenant who was always running to a sanitary inspector but of course we said oh no we wouldn't do that but we did and we had to go and get sanitary certificates which made the, the, the they had to we had reduced the rent till they'd done the repairs so it made the factor do something and we did that, and when the Senate's inspector came, he came to me at house first <laughs> to see who, what was what. And uh, eventually, we got they built these houses that we're now in, and we got them. And then we had a tenants' association in the, what, the, what is called the Cairns Scheme, and we, I was on the committee of the tenants' association, raising funds and getting members and doing things for the children, Christmas treat and outings and all that sort of thing. Yeah, but I did, did that for a number of years, you know. And obviously the people locally knew your politics. Oh.
2: The first collection I worked on is the Women in the Communist Party collection, which was done by Neil Rafiq for his PhD at the University of Strathclyde. And then he's speaking to women who were active within the Communist Party in Scotland. They got to listen to all these women and then phoning some of them up and speaking to, you know, older women about their experiences of being socialist activists. And I think also that collection's amazing because without those voices I think that is an aspect that would be completely lost so if you look up the history of the Scottish Communist Party you really don't see the women and and to see someone identifying that and rectifying it at the moment that it had to happen was really amazing and really helped me kind of understand that every collection we have has huge value and that making it available and doing the work that I do is is a really important part of that.
1: Did you find that um most communist woman members were involved in their tenants association or some local group. Was do you think that was the usual activity for many? Well it
3: depend it depended where they lived of course, you know, if they were in a housing scheme like this, you know, or even getting old houses sort I suppose they did do, the most of them that I know were interested in that, you know.
1: And did did the party encourage it? Did the party encourage involvement?
3: Oh yes, I mean We had, there was one man locally uh, who was an expert on housing. Uh, Gordon Massey. uh Uh-huh, Gordon Massey. He was um, an expert on housing matters and housing law. He was really smashing, you know, and he was in our branch. He's now dead.
2: It can be quite shocking to go from listening to a recording of someone in their 20s or 30s or however old they might have been, and then to pick up the phone and hear them so many years older. Like, it's kind of like time travel, in a way. Once Mel has listened to the recordings, the detective work begins. I will kind of go through and just draw a list of names, and then I will go through that list of names and just try and track down a contact for either that person or their estate, maybe if they're a known writer, but more often than not, you know, it's just like quote unquote everyday people so it will just be kind of that genealogical approach of looking at family trees looking at electoral records to try and get maybe an address and just googling them as well you would be surprised the number of people that pop up on facebook and not necessarily their profile but maybe a facebook page that posts old photographs someone will have commented that's my granddad and then their name and the school it is a very detailed process and I think copyright law is obviously really not designed for heritage. It's it's designed for like, you know, industries where there's profit and everyone has very clear license agreements and things like that. And when you come to a, a you know, a collection, again, maybe an oral history collection and there is no documentation because it just wasn't considered at the time, you know, the internet wasn't invented. So people didn't understand that they could be preparing in terms of copyright to then have that interview made available by an institution. It just wasn't a concept. And I think, um, sadly we had one collection where I found loads of people. I messaged them on Facebook and I could tell, I don't know if you have Facebook and you know, but if you're not like friends with somebody or if it's from a page, it goes to your like requests folder. And I knew that all those messages were sitting in the requests folder and these people obviously didn't check their requests folder because like who does? And I knew that they'd probably want to give me a licence if they could only see that message, but that was the only way I could contact them and I couldn't do anything about that. So that was really frustrating to be like so close to having so many people, just knowing there's nothing I could do. And, you know, maybe, maybe one day they'll check that folder and see it.
0: Fingers crossed. Mel had more luck with Neil Rafiq's interviews with women in the Communist Party. A breakthrough moment was tracing Frida Park, who appears in the recordings.
2: Frida is actually the person who I spoke to regarding copyright for the collection because she ended up having the copyright after he passed away and she was wonderful she was so helpful so keen to be involved in the project and is an interesting example I think of how just like your name can be really helpful because Frida I think is a slightly unusual name so I found it quite easy to find her and get in contact with her whereas if she'd been called like Susie Smith or something I don't know whatever it might be (laughs) then I might not have been able to find her and the same for Neil as well just having a very slightly unusual name can have a huge impact on whether I can contact someone but yeah she was super helpful and having that permission for Neil Rafink's copyright meant that we could make a good proportion of the collection available which we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do.
0: Let's hear some more from that collection now. Frida and Neil chatting about the Glasgow University branch of the Communist Party.
4: Can you describe what it was like in the Glasgow University
5: branch? Yeah, that time there was about, when I joined there was about five or six members. Um, So it had, you know, by that time you could begin to see a bit of decline. But it stayed about that kind of level the whole time I was at university. Um, And everyone was active pretty well um, that was involved in the branch. Um, in different areas of student politics and solidarity work and stuff like that, we used to meet regularly and um, we were reasonably um well respected in the left i think um, and reason, you know quite active as a branch and you know we did have that 's when we you know from my point of view we began to have serious discussions about you know how should a communist party branch operate um you know what, what, what do you what is a good Communist Party branch, what does it do, what do its members do, that kind of stuff, you know, so. Um, involving student politics and other, well, all aspects of it, you know, so SRC and um, the uh, different societies, you know, anti-apartheid and Chilean, all the different things that were around.
1: Different people have different things going on in their lives, you know, and I think for a lot of these women, the Communist Party was one of the things they were involved in. And what you find in a lot of their interviews is that there's a lot of other groups and other things that they're involved in, their campaign for nuclear disarmament and other things, and they kind of move from one group to the other over the course of their lifetime. So there's a lot of activism covered in the course of their lives and the course of the interviews.
5: Well, I worked um, for quite a long time in the peace movement and CND and the British Peace Assembly. Um, What practical
1: activities did you get involved in?
5: Uh, oh, well, God, everything. Um, I was very involved in CND when it was at its high point, um, around, you know, the time cruise missiles came and stuff like that. Um, and I was treasurer of the CND group and had other um, responsibilities. And, you know, had, we did things like we ran a big campaign during the the general election, um, press conferences, lobbying all the candidates, meetings with all the candidates. And it was very high-profile politically, um, the campaigns that we ran. Um, and you know, every week we had a stall on the street, petitioning, collecting money, uh, organising events, demonstrations, meetings, that kind of stuff. Um, so that I mean, that was around the you know, cruise missiles um, principle, Trident. Uh, Trident. Why was frightened? Frightened? Mm-hmm.
6: Why it so important to
5: you? Well, that has is, is historical roots as well. I mean, it's always been a big issue for communists. I think the most highly political issue um, and a critical one because, you know, it's something that capitalism can't offer us. can't offer us a peaceful world. Um, But also, you know, I was very affected when I was younger um, by images of war and the destruction and, uh, you know, quite scary, really, and the bombing of Vietnam and stuff like that. Um, So, you know, personally, there's an emotional uh, commitment to peace as well. Um, I was called Frida because it means peace. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a kind of destiny, if you like, almost.
0: Scotland's CND involvement crops up in several places within the archive. Our next clip features an impassioned speech from the very Reverend George Reid, recorded at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1982.
4: The world has always been attracted to violence film producers today know the appeal of violence to pull in the crowds but never before in history has the world accorded such authority to the principle of violence as when it's appointed the nuclear bomb to be the keeper of our peace we have been pressurized into thinking that Russia is the enemy Indeed, the Kremlin-style communism is evil. But the real enemy that is already overwhelming us is that dark element in our nature, which, among other things, has led us to accept the idea of the hellish nuclear bomb, with all its consequence, corruption of our nature.
0: Stirring stuff from the very Reverend George Reed. In order to collect such a wide range of archive audio, Unlocking Our Sound Heritage has hooked up with partners all over Scotland, including Glasgow University, where Claire Patterson is part of the team looking after archive and special collections.
7: I am so thrilled to be part of Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. First and foremost, we can be so much more confident about the preservation of this audio heritage and the second benefit is access. You never get the chance to look at everything in your collections. There's miles and miles of records you can never ever get to look at them all and I think when you put the challenge of the audio format into that mix, there was always that fear that we'd put the tape in the machine and something terrible would happen and when people are in to listen to them, quite often they're listening to them with headphones on so you don't get to eerie in. We're looking forward to being able to listen to your collections and engage with them on a personal and professional level. Glasgow University's collections include
0: records of the Upper Clyde shipbuilders work in, in the early 1970s. Famously, rather than downing tools in response to the government's decision to stop subsidies, they barricaded themselves in and continued
7: working. What we had was one of the university's academics, Charles Wilson, going to the shipyards and being part of the action, recording it as it's going on.
1: What these collections have done with the Upper Clyde shipbuilders is really get a lot of those stories straight from the people that were involved in it. And So there's been oral histories that have done after the event. There's also been some recordings that have been taken from the media at the time. So we've got that how it was being reported at the time. And then there's also a collection, which is actually recordings of shop steward meetings as well, really at the heart of the decision-making that was going on amongst the people that were involved in the industrial action.
0: This BBC recording of Jimmy Reid's Rosevale cinema meeting gets straight to the heart of the issue and the action.
8: Now, we immediately had meetings with the Labour Party ministers, etc. And then we went... And we got a meeting with Vic Feather, who promised us that he would get the TUC right behind us and to support us. This has been done. We went to the STUC. We got the same identity with the campaign from them. And finally, Harold Wilson came out with it the other day, that the whole British Labour movement is behind you. What a colossal uprising this is.
7: This clip allows us to hear what Jimmy Reid meant to the whole movement, his role in bringing the workers together. And it's not just Jimmy Reid himself. There was a group of people who shaped the movement and the organisation of the workers to have that work in. But I think the clip really allows us to see what it is about him that brings such feeling to that movement and it's just lovely to hear those words spoken as they were at the time and be allowed to listen in. Such an important part of Glasgow and Scotland's industrial heritage.
1: Each of those main characters that were involved in the UCS work in, you know, they all had their strengths. Jimmy Reeds was certainly in that ability to do that oratory that speech and galvanise people behind that kind of mass meeting. And I think this is a great example, again, of that. And I suppose just the way in which that the organizing of something like that and, and, and how it went about and how you were able to take you know, a whole workforce and, and try and get them all pointing in the same direction.
8: Because of the technique we have used, it is unique in Britain and they don't know how to counteract it. And let's keep it that way. Because the more we're united in this, proving that we are disciplined citizens, we are only asking the right to work, then they have no answer. They have no answer to that. So therefore, did this when he uttered these words, united the working class.
0: Jimmy Reid in full flight. Thanks to BBC Scotland for allowing us to share that clip.
8: It gives us an insight
7: into that particular Scottish brand of activism that was there in the 60s and 70s and that he continued throughout his political and civic life. And then you can take it forward into his position as university rector and, and his famous rectorial address of reject the rat race. It's lovely within our context here at, at University of Glasgow to be able to see here's what's happening in the industrial Clydeside and here's what's happening within our own university community and to have that thread through the collections. Glasgow University also holds
0: the Scottish Theatre Archive. We heard a few examples in the first episode of Unlocked. Here's another now. This is Vincent Flynn talking about his and his wife Anne's involvement with workers' theatre.
6: Well, so far as Anne and I were concerned, we saw the workers' theatre as a propagandist movement. We wanted uh, to put out uh, lines of argument, lines of thought... And we hoped that the audience would not only uh, listen to what we were saying, but uh, would act upon uh, that experience and that um, it might inform their activities in the Labour and the trade union movement. I think to some extent that that actually happened. The best example of that was uh, on guard for Spain which was dealing with a situation that was then going on. Now, one Guard for Spain was uh, a declamation that had been written by Jack Lindsay, and we took it up and it was produced by Laurie Lawson, and he used flags to as a sort of punctuation of the drama of the tale. It was a superb uh, piece of uh, uh, drama, And we decided that uh, it really ought to be done in the street.
7: This clip really shows the way in which Scottish culture was so plugged into and, and driven by the political and industrial context in which it's sitting. And it's not a parochial view at all. Looking now, we can really see that they were taking a worldwide view. They were looking at a European, a worldwide political and cultural issue and bringing it to the fore in Glasgow through theatre.
6: Now, the place was packed and you could have filled it over again, but there was two rows in the front kept. And although it wasn't our show, I was very annoyed about this and said so. And I said it to Arthur Brady, who was in charge of affairs, and but I knew and liked Arthur, and he said, no, no. We're keeping them for special uh, visitors. So I thought, well, being a, a, an intense Democrat, the idea of the last being first wasn't my idea at all. But I was amazed when I was out moving between the auditorium and the stage door to get in the back, uh, the back of the, the stage. There's a, a trail, that's what you would call it, literally a kind of crocodile not of school children but of elders this was the general council of the Scottish Trade Union Congress led by its general secretary and they were being brought and there they were it was as if they were coming to their own trial they were being brought to this occasion and they got the front seats And that really, and that taught me a bit about politics, how cleverly that was manoeuvred, because after that, the General Council of the SDUC, however reluctant they were, were involved in the Scottish
1: friendship for Spain. What I like about it is his sense of not quite understanding the way in which things have been manipulated in certain ways and almost his surprise.
7: It's nice to kind of be in on his journey of, you know, the penny dropping as to, oh, all right, okay. It's not so much because a, a grandee wants to come along and see our show. It's that actually, no, we want to make a point. We want to put these people in this position.
1: Again, interesting just the ways in which different people have employed ways of getting people behind their, their movement. So here was uh, the kind of theatre that we were interested in.
6: Here it had come alive. It was doing a practical thing. It wasn't simply holding a mirror up to life. It was also directing uh, the attention of people to the struggle, what the struggle was about, and what had to be done if the struggle had to be won. And how the struggle of Spain was not uh, an alien thing, not something on foreign soil, but something immediate to the people in Glasgow as it was to the people in all other towns.
0: Vincent Flynn from Glasgow University's Scottish Theatre Archive. In making recordings available, there's always a duty of care towards those involved. And this is particularly true
2: with audio archive. If you have a, an oral history interview where someone's just talking about their life, the likelihood that they maybe will just casually disclose something that could be a concern in a data protection context is much higher than if they'd written down a short paragraph about their life or whatever the alternative kind of format could be. So there's a very interesting challenge there. And I also think sound is much more emotive to engage with. So the potential experience for maybe a family member to listen to a recording of a parent or relative talking about something quite sensitive it becomes quite a different conversation i think when you're looking at those data protection risks as you can imagine things that are more likely to cause substantial damage and distress are often um that kind of intersects with protected characteristics and kind of can be perceived as anything that deviates from like a very cis heterosexual white narrative patriarchal narrative of history that is kind of seen as safe And then anything that deviates from that may be seen as more risky. So I felt very strongly and and was very supported in that by everyone on the project that we wouldn't just look at something and say, well, because this is talking about sexuality, that's high risk. And I'm really proud to say that we did clear a good proportion of those recordings. And I think that's so valuable. One collection which fell into this category was Remember When from Edinburgh Museums the LGBTQ plus oral history collection, uh, which is called Remember When. It was an oral history project by the Living Memory Association, interviews with different people talking about their experiences as LGBTQ plus people in Edinburgh. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to have been able to work on that. It, It was kind of the first time as a heritage professional who is also queer that I'd worked on a collection relating to my identity in my main job like I've done a lot of freelance work in that area but it was the first time that I had personally been like at my day job um, working on that kind of stuff which was a really great feeling. The
0: protests against section 28 feature prominently in the Remember When collection. Here's an archive interview with cartoonist and writer Kate Charlesworth.
5: I actually remember watching, I really do remember watching the six o'clock news which I didn't usually and Sue Lawley and I could hear these little squeaks and chirpings coming from the telly and I thought, what, what? and I heard somebody going, "Stop, about
4: 738.
5: and I thought, bloody hell, and they, they had they chained themselves to the desk and I thought, it's the girls and it was wonderful and, and they also in into the House of Laws which people tend to forget about but, but they did that as well <laughs> <laughs> So there was all that sort of stuff going on and I was just kind of a part of of it because I was doing cartoons for this year for various periodicals and that was my bit really and going on the demos and Gay Pride is very big. I
2: was still in school when Section 28 existed so it's something that I think is still very much having an impact something that maybe maybe people um are less aware of is 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 the kind of protesting or certainly that i was less aware of is the degree of protesting and support against it that was occurring and i think I, i just found it quite i guess moving to hear about that activism and direct action that has contributed to being where we are today to wrap
0: up this episode there's time for one final clip also from the remember when collection Here's Bob, reminding us that not every activist needs to be centre
6: stage. I've been running around doing lots of things um, in the background for years, but I've never wanted to be um, well known for it. I mean, the people I know who have um, popped up and had their faces um, recognised by the media. I think a lot of them would love to regret that a tad and I value my own privacy and I'm not a spokesman for the gay community. Um, I don't want to be a spokesman for the gay community, thank you. It's hard enough at times being a spokesman for me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that clip's almost ironic because it's him saying that he doesn't want to be a representative and in saying that we're saying look at this person who's who's representing the idea of not wanting to be um representative but the point he makes is wonderful i think it's really well put and i think the thing that surprised me about this collection in many ways is how kind of quote unquote surprisingly modern a lot of perspectives were you know that's something i could really see someone feeling now that sentiment is incredibly relatable Mel Reeve Rawlings
0: and thanks to Mel, Alistair Bell and Claire Patterson for guiding us through the archive and giving us a flavour of Scotland's history of activism in its many forms. Next time the theme is Voices. We've got a wonderful array of Scottish accents and dialects as well as a few glimpses back to everyday lives in the past. I'm Lindsay Moyes and this has been Unlocked, a podcast from National Library of Scotland and the Scotland Sounds Network. Thank you for listening.